This evening, as I am careful to point out at the beginning, I was assigned the text. So for those of you who might say, yeah, he's on his hobby horse yet again. Um, In my defense, I was appointed the text. We are this evening on Exodus 20. Don's schedule has directed us to the fourth and the fifth commandments tonight, which are the Sabbath and honoring your parents respectively. Now again, um, we had this in Deuteronomy this summer. Uh, I've used the Sabbath in particular as an illustration uh, as of late. And every time I come to it, I am rebuked uh, for my own living a little bit. And I want to share some of that rebuke with you. Uh, But I also try to present it a little bit differently every time um, so as not to wear any of us out. But before we get to Exodus 20, I want to give a little bit of theological background to it. Uh, Don had mentioned, and I think it's worth mentioning again, that the Ten Commandments are the stipulations of the covenant God is making with Israel. These commandments express how the people are to live if they are to have fellowship with a holy God. This is how you do it, these ten words. Though the structure of the contract was a familiar idea to Israel, it's a contract, in fact, we enter into contracts all the time. This was a covenant contract that followed a, a set pattern that was common to the Israelites. Though the structure was similar, and any of the given laws may have had some correlation to what was going on in other cultures, There are two commandments that make these ten unique among the rest of the world. Honor the Sabbath and honor your parents. The two positive commands out of the ten. No other culture in the world had anything like a Sabbath. And as we'll see shortly, I'm not sure we do either. No other culture in the world had the death penalty for not honoring parents. Unless perhaps the parents themselves decided to invoke their own. But these are unique commandments. All ten of them are unique. These two in particular. And the reason for that is that the covenant Lord is a unique Lord. He is the creator of the world. And what he expresses in these ten words are what he expects of his creatures, not merely his redeemed people. Moreover, he has redeemed people. He is Yahweh, the holy God. And so what he expects from his people is nothing short of that same holiness. So going back just a chapter into Exodus 19... Don had rightly mentioned, I believe, at this point, that Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, was the central text out of which in Israel was to form their own mind and their own actions. Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, in verse 4, he he gives the gospel, right? In fact, why don't we even just read verse 4? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Salvation, we might say. Verse 5. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was to be Israel. And if she is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, she has to live in a way that reflects the character of God. Now I bring up those two things, the creatorship of the Lord and the, redeem, uh, the lordness of the Lord, we might say, that he has redeemed the people. Those two streams as subjects and as priests flow out of one foundation. And that foundation is humanity is created in the image of God. In the image of God, we are not only to serve him the way he's created us in, in a manner that is fitting to the way he's created us, we are to serve him in such a way that we reflect that God to the wider world. Adam was supposed to be the progenitor of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he was designed for. Let's go back real quickly to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And this will be a little bit of the foundation that we look at a lot of what is coming here and a lot of the case I'm going to make with these two commandments. So Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now the Ten Commandments are instructing Israel in particular, but through Israel, all of humanity, how to be God's image, usually by avoiding certain courses of action. There are two exceptions to that. Remember the Sabbath and honor your parents. The only two positive commands out of the ten. Moreover, the commandments, these ten, are general commandments, not specific commandments. What I mean by that is that the command, do not steal, is a general command that takes a million different specifics. It includes embezzlement. It includes fraud. It includes uh, burglary. There's a thousand different ways do not steal ends up being applied. It is a general command that has a thousand different specifics to it. In the same way, no other gods, have no other gods before me, has a particular reference for the Israelites, which is don't pray to Dagon, for example, but it's also applied in a thousand other ways, such as not serving money and prioritizing wealth. It includes not adoring athletes and movie stars and businessmen. It includes not giving veneration or devotion to entertainment and recreation. Those things go to God. thousand different ways that commandment's supposed to be applied. These commandments are general with thousands of applications in most cases. So I'll, you'll see how that plays out in these two commandments a little bit later on. But one more note I want to make before we get to the actual text here, going back to Genesis 1. Generally, humanity does what humanity is not supposed to do. 
Eight of the Ten Commandments are prohibitions. Don't do this, don't do that. Generally speaking, we do what we were created to do, which is sinful man doesn't need to be told to procreate. Sinful man doesn't need to be told to take control and subdue his surroundings. He does that, right? Generally, what man was created to do, he does, except remember the Sabbath and honor your parents. Doesn't do those. Which is why I take at least the Ten Commandments to be eight prohibitions and two positive commandments. Generally, we do by nature, roughly, Genesis 1. Though we do it in a sinful and twisted way, we still generally do it. But not these two. These two are different. And so here it seems as though God has a particular correct, correction that he's offering humanity. Two things you don't do that I want you to do. Remember the Sabbath and honor your parents. So let's go to Exodus 20. I will read verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It could also be translated to sanctify it. That's same thing, same thing. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Now, partly for variety and partly because I did not know I was going to do this until about Thursday, uh, I'm going to organize this differently than I organize most sermons and most lectures, frankly. I'm going to break it into three sections. Notes on the text, just making some textual observations. Theology of the text and application of the text. So first, notes on the text. Verse 8. The main commandment in this passage is to remember. Remember the Sabbath day. That is an essentially positive command, right? Remember the Sabbath. Do something. It is to be, what is to be remembered? The Sabbath or the seventh day? They're very closely related words in Hebrew, just one letter off. They sound uh, very much the same. Um, but they are to remember the seventh or the Sabbath day. And by the way, I think it's significant that the Sabbath day is only mentioned to be the seventh in relation to the Lord's work creating the pattern, uh, not remember the seventh day, to call it the Sabbath instead of the seventh, I do think is significant. But anyway, why is it to be remembered? To keep it holy. Now the ESV has it to keep it holy as if to sanctify it is the purpose of remembering it. But I think the NIV maybe is a little bit more clarifying by means of sanctifying it, which is the NIV, I think, reads, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And I think that's maybe a preferable way to think about it in this case. And what, what Israel is to do in remembering the Sabbath is they are to set it aside. That is how they remember it. They remember it by sanctifying it 
or by keeping it holy. Making the seventh day a holy day, a holy day is done through engaging in our God-given work for six days and resting on one. Refraining from work on the seventh. Verse 9. Six days you shall do your labor and all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. This pertains not only to us, but to all of those who are under our authority. You shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock. It may not be, we may not work, those under our authority may not work, and those who may be forced to work because of our activity, the sojourner who is within your gates. But what makes this unique, this day unique, um, As Alistair Bagg has pointed out, it was brought to my attention, what makes this a holy day instead of a holiday is not that we rest and therefore the day is sanctified, but rather that we rest because the day has been sanctified. That's the logic of the text, right? Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore... The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Remembrance is the point, not rest. Rest is a means to an end. We rest in order that we might remember. Remember is the commandment. Rest is a means to that end. That's my notes on the text, the theology of the text. The command is to remember the day for a purpose, that we might sanctify it. But what of the day specifically is to be remembered? Verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. We are to remember that while six days belong to us, six days are given to us that we may work, that we may prosper ourselves and those around us and be a benefit to those around us. We might work six days for our earthly advantage. There is one day when we do not work for our earthly advantage. No material advantage but rather we focus ourselves on the Lord. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Not primarily a Sabbath for your rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Particularly, his status as our creator, Lord. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. This is part of his first week of creative activity. The Lord doesn't even attach this at all to the Exodus. This is not some random command that the Lord gave Israel because he redeemed them. The Sabbath existed before redemption. 
The commandment existed before redemption. The Sabbath exists because God created and he rests, not because he redeemed and therefore we can finally take a break. It's creative. That's the Sabbath. It is a creation ordinance, not something merely added on to this covenant and something that will be expunged from the new and updated covenant. It's part of creation. It's interwoven in the fabric of our pattern of work and God's pattern of work, and therefore the way he made us. So the Sabbath existed because God created, not first because he redeemed. The Sabbath still exists because God created, not primarily because he redeemed. Now in Deuteronomy, redemption adds another reason why we are to keep the Sabbath. Our salvation in Christ adds another reason why we are to keep a Sabbath. It doesn't remove our obligation to do it. It gives us more reason for it rather than less. So, that is why the severity for breaking the Sabbath was extreme but entirely fitting. Exodus 31, verses 12 to 15. Exodus 31, verses 12 to 15. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, (laughs) isn't that remark? Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Which I take to be a plural of the seventh day, by the way. And you'll see why here in just a second. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Do you realize that the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, the one day out of seven, is the only day in Israel that transgression of that day calls for the death penalty? No other day, no other day in Israel's entire calendar had this consequence. The closest they come is the Day of Atonement. When transgression for the day of atonement is that the Lord will cut him off from his people. It does not invoke the, uh, capital punishment. Only breaking the Sabbath does. In a sense, the weekly Sabbath was more holy than the Passover. More holy than the day of atonement. More holy than any of the feasts throughout all of Israel's year. The one in seven takes precedence over any. Above all. Keep my Sabbaths. We'll contrast that to our day and age. Which is more significant, the weekly Sabbath or Easter? Right? When, when do we show up at church? When are we sure to be there? Easter and Christmas. Be there every week. Every one in seven. That's what the Lord is after in his people. It is not our day to do as with we please. 
We have six days for that. There is one day that is the Lord's time. A day that is holy to the Lord. The Sabbath. Every one in seven. That's merely the theology of the text. (laughs) Now we come to the application of the text. Now, though it is debated, uh, and, and we can have this discussion later on when I don't have the clock running on me, I'm going to assume that for the Christian in our day and age, Sunday is the Sabbath. Um, there's a lot to go into that, and I realize that technically Sunday is not strictly the Sabbath, um, but I believe the heartbeat of what the Lord is getting at in this commandment is applicable to us on our Sundays generally. Not to say there's no exceptions to that. Again, these are general commandments. And generally, I think it's applicable to us on Sunday. First application. Obedience is primarily a mental matter. It is a day that we are to have a particular view of. We're to look at it differently than we look at the other six. It is a day holy to the Lord. The holy day of the week. This means, above all, that we are not to think the Sabbath is a day that we can do what we want to do with. When we approach a Sabbath, the way I have historically approached a Sabbath is it's my day to do what I want to do on, especially on the farm when I did have to work six days a week, right? It's like the Sabbath, I get a rest. What do I want to do today? And it was convenient enough that I wanted to go to church in the morning, right? So it worked out fine. But the rest of the afternoon is pretty much up to me, right? What do I want to do with the day? And what the text is saying is, no, that's not yours to decide. This is the Lord's day. Holy to the Lord. One day set aside to remind you your time is not your own. And mostly, most above all, it is not your own on this day. It is the Sabbath. We are obligated to remember the day and to sanctify it and use it unlike any other day. In comparison to all the other days, this is a theologically oriented day. The reason and the focus of this day are not separate from one another. What I mean by that is the reason for the day is that it's holy to the Lord. It is the Lord's day. Our focus on the Lord's day is that it is a holy day to the Lord. Right? We gather, and this is why I'm, I'm just going to dip toe into it. The reason we gather on the Lord's day is to focus ourselves on the Lord, right? That's why we do it. That's the point of the Sabbath. Focus on the one who created the day and on the one who sanctified the day and the one who created the world. And oh, by the way, he's also the one who redeemed you in Deuteronomy. So there's reason upon reason piled upon us for paying attention to this day. The day is not about us. It's about the Lord and our imitation of him. And nothing could be more unique than that. Two, rest is a means to an end. The activity of the other six days end as definitely as the Lord's creative work ended. When the Lord rested on the seventh day, he entirely put down his creative work. He was done. Our weekly routine is to end as definitely, insofar as we can. Of course, the Lord knows there are always necessities that must be done. It's not as though the Lord did nothing on day seven. He was still sustaining creation as he does at every moment of every day. 
but his creative work was done. And so it is supposed to be on the seventh. The work is supposed to be done. Which is why in Numbers, num- let's go there, Numbers 15. When there is found among them someone who is doing on the Sabbath what could be done on another day, but was neglected, there was, again, the death penalty invoked. And notice, by the way, I, I don't know how things worked out exactly chronological back in the day, but excuse me, what I can tell you is that Exodus 31 comes before Numbers 15. Right? But in Numbers 15, starting in verse 32, we have this issue with a Sabbath breaker. What do we do? Verse 32 of Numbers 15. Well, the people of Israel were in the wilderness. They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. They already had the Sabbath command. But how is it to be applied specifically in this case? And I think what's happening here is, well, stick gathering doesn't need to be done on the Sabbath. You have six days to do that sort of thing. So, verse 35, And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And there's no reason given for it. And so there's a little bit of conjecture as to exactly what the reasoning behind it was. Um, why, why was this a transgression? And if it was, why was it not clear to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation? Um, but I, I just throw that out there to say this. If work could be done on one of the six days, it's supposed to be done. Though the Lord knows there are certainly some necessities. But think of it. Laundry, cooking, business work. Family time, yard work, recreation, all of those things, they're to take a back seat. They're to take a back seat to spiritual matters. Now I know those things can be enjoyable for some, and for some people that even is a break and even restful to a degree. And I don't think doing any of those things, or shopping for example, is, is necessarily a sin on the Sabbath. But, insofar as they distract from or detract from imitating God in his first week of creation, are they really what the commandment is trying to tell us not to do? We are to set aside all we can, not only what we must, We are to set aside all that we can if this day is to be a holy day. In Scripture, the pattern is not five plus two. It's six plus one. That one day is to be utterly unique. And we follow the Lord in doing it. And not only that, it stands not just for us, but all of those who are under our care. Homework, house chores, whatever the case may be. All of those under our care. Same thing. No work on this day. There are six days to do the work. Six days for worldly study for the student. Though it's God's world. Six days for study. One day devoted to spiritual study. How many of us want to prioritize family time? 
on Sabbath. What better way to spend family time than family devotions? It's holy to the Lord. Recreational pursuits. Six days for recreational pursuits. And though it is a pleasure given by God, there is one day devoted for true rest. And there is one sort of training that is beneficial in every way. Right? First Timothy 4.8 Bodily training is of some value, but godliness, that's of value in every way. That's what we are to pursue on the day that is holy to the Lord. So I'll, I'll summarize and end the Sabbath command with this guiding principle. Does what we do on the Sabbath reflect the picture of Yahweh on the Sabbath as he ended his work and sanctified the day for himself? Is what we do on the Sabbath reflective of what our Creator and our Lord did on the Sabbath as he rested and sanctified the day to himself? That's what the commandment, I think, is about. Honoring parents. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We'll go through the same threefold pattern here. Notes on the text. Verse 12. The commandment is to honor. It could even be translated give weight to. We could even translate it glorify. That's the same word as used of glorifying God in the assembly, right? Uh, it's, it's the same word here to glorify parents as we glorify the Lord. The context is what makes us translate honor instead of glorify. Fine translation. Just want to point out that the word is the same and has that range of meaning, both in relation to God and, I think, closer than we might often want to give credit to uh, in this commandment as well, though we are never to worship father and mother. As one commentator said, um, parents make awful deities, but uh, we are nonetheless to honor and borderline glorify them. And there is a goal or benefit in doing so, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is a promise for the nation of, in, of Israel, not necessarily for every individual in it. Though the wisdom from obeying the commandment generally will lead to a longer life for the individual who abides by it as well. Now the land here is referred to as a gift. Belong, uh, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The land itself is referred to a gift as a gift, and no doubt uh, the lengthening of days is also a gift. It's not something that the Israelites merit. It's something that the Lord gives them as they meet the conditions of his covenant and remain faithful to him in honoring their parents. And we'll see why those two things are connected in a little bit. That's all I have for notes on the text, theology of the text. Those conditions of honoring parents must be met because the Lord is as personally involved in extending our days as our mother and our father are. Remember, in the Old Covenant, 
that the mother and father were obligated to bring a disobedient and respectful, disrespectful child to the elders of the city. And the elders of the city were to determine what was to be done with that disrespectful child. If they were incorrigible and would not receive correction, they were to be executed. What would it take, though, for a parent to bring their child to the elders? Um, it have to be pretty overwhelming. Um, nonetheless, obeying and honoring your father and your mother is a gift. Um, the ability, not just the ability to do that, but the results of having done it. And the Lord is the person who extends not just the gift of the land, but the gift of the days on the land. The condition to be met is honoring father and mother. The reasons for honoring, not so clear directly in this text, but if we go over to Proverbs 23, and we'll look at a couple different Proverbs because I think it's the most helpful place. Um, and Proverbs 2, again, this is another reason why I say these are creation ordinances, uh, these, these big ten. Proverbs remain true whether you're a Christian or not. It's still good wisdom because it's the way God has created the world. And so it's looking at something even like the Ten Commandments here and it's drawing uh, Solomon, I think, is drawing the wisdom that he finds out of Torah as he writes these sort of things. So Proverbs 23, verse 22 and following. So reason for honoring parents. Number one, both parents gave life. Proverbs 23, starting in 22. Listen to your father who gave you life. And do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Why honor your parents? Well, simply because you have life because of them. Just like you have life because the Lord gave it to you. Not only that, but as those through whom we came into existence, they sort of stand in the place of God. They do not replace God, but they stand as God's agents and as earthly manifestations of God's kindness to us in giving us life. And now though Israel was a patriarchal society, as in a sense the church still is, mothers enjoyed a privileged status not simply because they gave birth, but also because of the wisdom of their comparative life experiences. Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. Mothers uh, receive their due right alongside fathers, as is appropriate. Remember, he created them male and female. Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. We could also look at Proverbs 15:20, we won't, but all this to say there is a wisdom that parents can offer their children generally that will lead to long life. And so one is to give weight to parents and by extension to gray hairs, we might say, uh, elders, those who have gone before us who have provided the life that we enjoy and who 
we hope, by their own gift from the Lord, can guide us in wisdom. Application of the text. Exodus 20 says nothing of the type of parents who we are to honor. It's unqualified, both for those who honor and for those who are honored. Nor does the text need to. Because again, those who have gone before us, though we may not take their advice, it's worth listening to them. Wisdom is found even among those who are foolish sometimes, right? We, we all know the expression. I use it way too often. Even a blind squirrel can find a nut. Um, and so it is with the foolish. Their life experiences have certainly taught them something, and there's often grains of truth in the sorts of things they're trying to teach others. We might have to sift to find it, and we might ultimately reject their advice, whatever it might be. But nonetheless, we still show deference and honor to them by listening to that. Not only that, but in Ephesians 6, verse 1, Paul sort of gives a qualification uh, to what we might call unqualified obedience. Ephesians 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now that phrase does not necessarily mean the parents are in the Lord, What it means, I think, is that children are to obey their parents in the spirit of the Lord, which is to say, insofar as you are able, obey your parents, but always lend the ear that assumes your parents are obedient worthy. And I do think in Ephesians 6 that Paul assumes the parents of the children he is referring to are Christian parents, in which case his command stands mostly unqualified. Now, that is a targeted application there in Ephesians 6. Uh, it, it does, I think, assume that the parents will be Christians. But again, the commandment in Exodus 20 gives no qualification about unbelieving parents. So how do we honor or give weight to our parents, especially if they are unbelievers? The commandment does not require us to obey them in everything. It commands us to honor them, to give weight to them, to hold their opinions in high regard. No one ages out of that obligation. And no one dies out of it either. One way we honor our parents is by not manipulating them in their old age when they're able to be manipulated a little bit. Just like we honor children by not twisting their minds in order for our selfish advantage either. It means respecting their wishes after they have passed and abiding by what they had hoped they had for their last will and testament and such. Now, all of this too is part of what it means to imitate God. For God not only honors himself, but he demands that we honor because he has placed a certain degree of honor on parents as well. By telling us that we ought to honor parents, he has himself placed honor on the parents. 
do what I have done. I have honored them by making them parents. You honor them because I've made them parents. That is a creation ordinance, right? That's not something simply because they've been redeemed. However, the redeemed have additional reason for it. We'll end this evening on Leviticus 19. And this is why we sang, Holy, 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 and to be more like the blessed Redeemer. Exodus 19, verses 1 to 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere, the actual word there is fear, as in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Each one of you shall fear his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Now, isn't that remarkable? Of all of the commandments the Lord could give to say, I'm holy, be holy, remember the Sabbath, honor your parents. That's incredible. And what could be a greater testament to the rest of the world that we are holy other than doing what the Lord has given us to do in obeying those two commandments? There's remarkable opportunity in this. Remarkable opportunity for Christian witness. Remarkable opportunity for our own growth and our own sanctification. This is for our good. And the Lord gives it to us like that. You want to be like me? Honor my Sabbaths. Honor your parents. And I find it remarkable that the two verbs that Moses happens to use about our relationship to our parents, glorify and fear. Look at your parents, especially if they were godly, as if they were in the place of God. Look at your Sabbath. Look at the one in seven. As the day that belongs not to you, but to the Lord. And when people ask you, as they are going to, why do you do that? Gospel. Right there. Be holy. For I, the Lord, am holy. There is none like him. And there would be none like us if we did as he's told us to. Remarkable opportunity. Remarkable advantage for ourselves. And remarkable possibilities for the world. And those two commandments. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we marvel at your infinite wisdom. We tremble at your holiness and we fear at our own lackadaisical, self-centered, lazy approach to your day and to our parents. We pray that you would forgive us that you would have mercy on us and through our meditation on these texts, that you would sanctify us, that you would make us holy, those who obey you, seeking the reward that you give and seeking the souls of those who are lost. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. Make us like thee, we pray. Amen.